Freedom Hut. Is systemic racism a conspiracy theory? The L.A. sheriff who's calling out LeBron James. A judge in Pennsylvania says some lockdown measures are in fact unconstitutional. And CDC's critical race theory training canceled. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. You feel that? You feel that energy, friends. You see it. You know it. It's there. You can almost touch it. The battle is underway. Who's going to be running this country for the next four years? What's that going to mean for your freedom, your safety, your bank account, your everything, you name it, right? Your kids schooling. There's a lot that's affected by this. I wish we could say we live in a country where no one has to pay attention to who the government is who's running it, at least. Uh, But that's not the case. As we know, it's a big deal, big difference. Wars can be started for the wrong reasons. Wars can be lost. Economies can collapse and crash. It does matter who's in charge. And it does matter that we speak honestly about what the real downsides can be. Uh, But today, I I wanted to start with something a little bit different, a little bit less in the center of the news cycle. Oh, there's so much with Trump. And now that we got... The Abraham Accords, we'll talk about that later on in the show. Um, But, you know, the the president signing these agreements for Mideast Mideast peace between Israel, the UAE and Bahrain. But I want to start with something else, because what has really roiled the country this year? As we know, that the twin pillars of our politics have been covid, the lockdowns, the response and BLM. Let's drill down into this BLM issue, which is really an ongoing conversation that's one way of putting it riots and looting and violence and all this around this too but and police brutality discussions but it's really an ongoing conversation about race relations in this country and at the center of it there have been some theories some concepts that we've all been told we have to accept uncritically we can't discuss isn't it fascinating critical race theory is a, a doctrine that insists that you not be critical of the theory. Right? That you're not allowed. It's based in critique, but criticism for you of these ideas is not allowed. In that sense, it's kind of a rhetorical trick, isn't it? But this was fascinating. There's a, a guy named Matthew Frank, and he is a uh, associate director of the James Madison Program and lecturer in politics at Princeton University. So this is a smart guy. Never heard him before. And he wrote this. This was on the publicdiscourse.com, a site I've never heard of before, but this crossed my radar. And I want to tell you about this because it's fascinating and it's philosophically central to this moment we're in. Now, everyone else today is going to focus on, oh, but you know, Trump did this or Trump said that. And Yeah, of course, that's part of our fight, and we have to talk about that on many days, too. But I want to take you into the philosophy of the fight for a moment, because there are some concessions that have been made in our debates about all this. There have been some phrases, some uh, mindsets, concepts that we've adopted consciously or not that maybe we really need to take a step back and think much more about. One of them would be white supremacy. 
I've been trying to raise the alarm for a few years now on this show and in every platform and in every uh, area that I can. That white supremacy as a term has been expanded because it is so odious and hateful and wrong. Actual white supremacy, the notion of white people being better than other people is irrational, immoral and wrong. And we all agree on that. Right. The, the our society agrees white supremacy bad. white supremacists in movies are the bad guys. They're meant to be cheered against by the entirety of the American audience. And that is what happens. Right. They were the black boot wearing swastika tattooed skinhead bad guys of the 90s. That's what white supremacy meant. And you could take it back to Jim Crow and to slavery. And there has been real evil white supremacy in our history. But the term has now been expanded. Now we will hear that the judicial system is a continuation of white supremacy, that land ownership, that capitalism is white supremacy. These are all things the left claims. The expansion of white supremacy to include all these other areas is just meant to be a method of attack that you can't push back against. Well, are, are you in favor of white supremacy all of a sudden? No, I'm in favor of capitalism. Well, capitalism, according to our new Marxist overlords on the left and the Democrat Party, capitalism is a form of white supremacy. You'd say, well, wait, what? And they'll say, well, look at history and look what's happened. They'll try to make this argument. But ultimately, the argument is, are you in favor of they're just redefining what white supremacy is. So then you have to say, wait, hold on. I'm not in favor of white supremacy. Aha, you're on defense. You're on defense. Another area of this is systemic racism, right? Systemic racism. Now, it's perhaps worth noting systematic racism would be a system that as part of its function produces racist outcomes. Systemic racism is just a way of saying it's all throughout the system. It's not even just one output of a process that would be systematic systemic is the whole thing there's racism oozing out of its pores racism just just billowing out from all over the entirety of the system so systemic racism is really just a fancy way of saying everything is kind of racist that that the left doesn't like there's racism in everything that they don't like we've allowed this to creep into our conversations and in fact, I've come across this many times. You'll have people who think they're intelligent, who think they're knowledgeable and wise. They're wrong, but they do believe these things. You'll have Democrats and even some Republicans. Look at Mitt Romney marching with BLM on his never ending quest to embarrass me and everybody else who voted for the guy in 2012. And he's succeeding. He's succeeding in that quest. Good job, Mitt. But the whole purpose of this is to put you on defense because they'll ask you, are you saying there's no systemic racism? And you turn around and say, well, what does that even mean? And, and yes, in fact, I will say, where is the systemic racism? Because if you're just going to judge something by the output of a system without looking at either individual circumstances and, and other variables that go into a system, like the judicial system, for example, you would have to explain, is our judicial system systemically anti, in some ways it is anti-male if you ever spend any time in 
family court, but is it systemically anti-male because men are 90 percent of the of the defendants in criminal court over violent assaults? More than 90 percent. No, that's that doesn't make any sense. It's not anti-male. It's just there are more males who commit violent acts than females. Oh, I know. This is oh, is that are we allowed to say this? Buck, why are you? Why are you speaking the most obvious truths that everybody already knows? You're not allowed to do that anymore. Isn't that interesting? Now, to borrow from one of, uh, uh, to borrow from one of Orwell's lesser known, to speak uh, the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. That's what it feels like right now. There is so much universal deceit going on, and part of it is this systemic racism construct. Now, this author that I mentioned to you, Matthew Frank, he wrote a piece, an opinion piece in Newsweek. And it was accepted. And he wrote about this on the public discourse. As it was accepted on September 11th for publication by the opinion editor of Newsweek, Josh Hammer. I know Josh's work. Josh is a good guy. He's a conservative. He's trying to get diverse opinions on there. It was accepted and published on September 14th in the morning. Two hours later, the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, Nancy Cooper, just took it down. Just took it down. Who does that? You have opinion editors that are allowed to approve and put on the site things. Here you have an academic from Princeton who writes about whether systemic racism is a conspiracy theory. Which it is. We'll get to that. But they pulled down this piece two hours after its publication online, which is completely contrary. You're noticing this more frequently now that happened to the New York Times with the publishing of the Tom Cotton op-ed. That op-ed editor had to resign because he published a sitting senator who, especially in retrospect, made not just an entirely within the bounds of discourse written argument, but was correct in the argument that he made, that the rioting lunatics should face the force of the state. Sorry, libs. But that was the Tom Cotton op-ed of the New York Times. Now we have this Newsweek op-ed. What was the crime, so to speak, that Matthew Frank committed here? Well, he wrote a piece about how systemic racism is a, effectively a hoax, that systemic racism as a concept is just abused for political purposes, and it does not really exist. It is, in fact, a conspiracy theory because you don't have any proof of it And it is alleged to be disprovable based upon the emotional impulses around it. In fact, when you try to disprove it, that is taken as evidence that you have fallen for the uh, or you are part of, I should say, the conspiracy. You are part of the conspiracy. That's why this is it is a conspiracy theory. And this really upsets liberals. This really upsets them because they think that this is a this is now a centerpiece of their ideology, of their belief. Oh, my gosh, I oppose systemic racism, just like they oppose climate change, just like they believe in, you know, women's reproductive rights. These these concepts that they they either speak about dishonestly or they become emotionally invested in without ever thinking, what is it that they're really claiming? What is what is the real claim of systemic racism? Is that there was racism in the past? There is racism today. If there's systemic racism, show me where it is in the system. In fact, the only systemic racism that really exists is in favor in our system 
of uh, black and Hispanic and Latino and Native American minorities in college admissions and for employment opportunities. That's the only systemic racial discrimination. And you can say it's positive discrimination. They come up with new terms to justify this, but it's racial discrimination. And as the Supreme Court has already written in recent years, if you want to stop discriminating by race, stop discriminating by race. It's very straightforward. But they don't like that. The left is invested in this. They derive power from this. They derive moral meaning from this jihad that they can wage without actually taking any risks themselves. That's that's what's one of the things that's so seductive about left wing politics and ideology. All you have to do is espouse the approved phrases. All you have to do is like a little marionette dance to the tune that they want you to. And now they'll be nice to you. They'll help you. They'll promote you. They'll like you. And you're a good person. So this is why we have, you know, these these libs. This is why you have, you know, a white female Wesleyan grad who thinks that she's a warrior for racial justice by screaming epithets in the face of a black police officer in D.C. who's just trying to do his job. That's how you get to that point in society, because people are invested in this. They they like this feeling that they get that is unearned virtue. Unearned virtue is central to the Democrat mindset today. Oh, I believe these things. I share them publicly. I take these positions. I vote this way. Therefore, I'm a good person. I don't even take the position that I vote for Republicans or that I'm a conservative because I'm a good person, although I think you could make that case. But I do it because I think it's just better, correct, right. It makes for a society of more safe, happy, prosperous, healthy, free human beings. But we have to keep pushing for that. It's not just, oh, I take this position, therefore I'm better than other people. So what happened in this Newsweek piece? Why is systemic racism a concept that the left is so devoted to? Well, we should dig into this some more. But here's the the short version of what happened in this case with the piece by Matthew Frank. They could not allow, the editor-in-chief of Newsweek could not abide a piece making this case without at least an oppositional piece running alongside it. That was the claim they made. You see, friends, they're always tilting the battlefield in their favor and looking at you like, I'm not weighing in on one side or the other. I'm just a journo. Like we're all a bunch of idiots. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Is systemic racism a conspiracy theory? Brilliant stuff here from Matthew Frank. You know it's good because the libs panicked at the very mention of it, at the very title, the thesis. They can't handle it. You'd think if if systemic racism was so easily proven, if it was so omnipresent, how many times have you heard about that? Turn on CNN. Turn on MSNBC. You'll have some halfwit expert go on TV who says, oh, we all understand that systemic racism exists and systemic racism and systemic. That's just kind of a fancy dressed up way of saying racism. But then when you're saying, well, if you're going to talk about a system that produces racism, show me the racism in the system. You get nothing. You get nothing. The best they can come up with is disparate impact theory and when you say well what does disparate disparate impact theory tell you it's well look 
New York City. I know the prison system here a bit because I work for the NYPD. New York City, 90% of Rikers Island, which is the main prison for New York, is black and Hispanic. Now, are, are we claiming in this that, or would they claim, I should say, that the uh, Bureau of Prisons or that Rikers Island, the New York Bureau of Prisons or Rikers Island is putting innocent people in prison? Is, is the system racist? Is that why the, there is that disparity in Rikers Island? Let's hear them make that claim and then let's talk about that. Maybe they're right, but let's talk about that. Now, I think that they would not be right, but at least we could No, But instead, it's just you are told to bow your head in solemnity and say, you're right. You're right. There's systemic racism. In, and well, where? This is where Frank makes his most compelling arguments. And this is why the left was so upset with this um here he goes americans quote are talking constantly these days about racism and if anyone needed reminding of its dominant historical form specifically anti-black racism it's still a very real thing and we all have a stake in its eradication but is systemic racism a real thing in the united states to judge from the weakness of the case made for it i would say no in fact, the thesis for the existence of systemic racism looks just like a conspiracy theory with one salient difference from other conspiracy theories. Let me explain. My friends, end quote there. Th this is this is uh, thermonuclear stuff in politics. Now, you're not allowed to ask these questions, right? The libs take this as ground they've already won. They say systemic racism and the right runs and cowers in fear. And you say, w why? Can't we talk? Show me this. If you want me to make this better, if I'm supposed to be an ally, which is a term that is much abused, but if you want me to be an ally with you, then point to where this is and don't expect me to accept false premises or lies or misrepresentations in the specifics. Ooh, it gets better. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, yes, continuing with this uh, polled Matthew Frank piece. Newsweek doesn't like to write anything or doesn't like to publish anything that's worth reading, it seems. I also, I love this conceit that conservatives... And Frank writes this. Many conservatives know their views must always be balanced and contextualized in conjunction with liberal views in the mainstream media. But liberals opinions are never treated that way. One hundred percent. You see this all the time. I'll never forget when I was at CNN and I was sitting there with a a CNN anchor on set. And I asked her the question because she kept we kept doing these segments and it would be conservative political commentator Buck Sexton and political analyst Van Jones, political analyst or gurgling gurgling. Oh, I'm 180 years old and Sexton over here wasn't around for the Reagan administration, Nixon administration, administration of you know, Rutherford B. Hayes. I always, I'm like, why do we have this guy on TV? Oh, Jeff Zucker says I'm smart and uh, sound old and authoritative but they would always say political analyst for this other person. It was always the other person was a political analyst. Why was I a conservative political commentator? But the lib DNC propagandist 
who always got to talk more and didn't get interrupted. Look, CNN was great training. It was like going into the enemy camp for two years and seeing how all the sausage is made. And it's gross. But I would see this happen. And I, I remember I asked the anchor, I said, why is that the case? And she looked at me with just this dumb fear, like, what do you mean? And I said, why am I always labeled as a conservative, but the liberal is always just a person who has expertise, a person with a point of view? Now, we all know the answer to this, but I'm te- when I tell you this, I'm being serious. She's, she's now a, an anchor um, on CNN, and was, she was an anchor then, but now she's a bigger anchor. And she looked at me, and, and it was clear from her face, and this was off camera, I'm being honest with you, she just had never, this had never occurred to her before. See, it's so, you want to talk about systemic, systemic undermining and silencing of conservative voices in the American news media. That is systemic. It's all over the place. You see it. I'll show it to you. CNN doesn't even have real conservatives on air anymore. I mean, they got poor Rick Santorum, who's clearly got a mortgage to pay. So he shows up to get punched in the face over there. Feel bad for the guy. That's it. I mean, they, they, you know, what, what are we, you want to talk about a system that is a system that is thoroughly soaked with anti-conservatism. So, and, I, and I'll argue, I'll talk about who are your contributors? How much time do they get on air? How often are they, you know, I can actually point to why I'm saying this is systemic. Where is the proof taking us back to our initial thesis here? Where is the proof for systemic racism in America? If they're going to talk to me about outcomes of systems only and not what is being done by the system i would st- i would say hold on a second lots of things have disparate outcomes right i mean you know i i i remember in crossfit class you know seeing my bench press versus you know you put all your stuff on the board and yes i could bench press more than all of the women that doesn't make me impressive right but it's a disparate outcome yeah why you know, is there oppression in that system? No, that's just the reality of it. There was no there was no bias against the women. I just I could you know, I'm a dude. I could bench more. Right. I mean, who, who, who cares? I'm just feeling these days like the gym is so depressing because I haven't been in, it in seven months that I'll take I'll take <laughs> I'll take any upside I can. But my point is that just because there are differences in a system, unless you're a true communist or Marxist, you'd have to. And as we know, they create in many ways the most disparate systems where you have no rights or the vast wealth disparities are even greater than they would be in a system like our own. Anyway. But you, you, you see here, they won't even allow the debate to happen. They won't even allow the argument to occur. And they don't even they won't admit to the ways where they're trying to skew the conversation. So back to this Frank piece where he's saying that this is a conspiracy. Conspiracy theories are a hardy species of weed. He writes anti-Semitism, whether left or right, thrives on them. Think of the foul fantasies of the protocols, of the elders of Zion. What else can explain the spread of the ludicrous QAnon? Uh, examples could be multiplied, but two related features mark all conspiracy theories. First, the lack of evidence for their central claims does not count against them. Indeed, evidence to the contrary does no damage to belief in them, but is regarded as either proffered, uh, proffered by the credulous or deliberately faked by the conspirators themselves. Second, 
The very denial of a conspiracy theory's truth is taken as confirmation of it. The denier will typically be declared to be in on the conspiracy himself. Of course he would say that. He's one of them. Judged by the presence of these two characteristics, that for its adherence is unfalsifiable and that denial is taken as a guilty confirmation, the proposition that American society and institutions are afflicted by systemic racism has to be one of the greatest conspiracy theories of our time so widely believed is it and what is fascinating the true genius of the theory is that it has no conspirators at all it doesn't need them in fact their absence is central to the theory this is a this is important i mean i, I know this isn't a huge news story today oh you know this is the latest trump tweet no no this is important this this is if we're going to win not just the battle for this election but the battle for this country's future we have to fight back against wrong ideas we have to fight back against destructive incorrect divisive ideology and and i i have seen this there is a pervasiveness now of okay well the left went through a period and it went to the 90s where everything was racist. Oh, everything is racist. You watch the movie PCU and there's a group of, uh, you know, black activists on campus in it, and they're, they walk around and it's supposed to be a joke. You probably couldn't make this joke anymore, but they just walk around. You know, the tree is racist. The blackboard is racist. The, 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 the stones in front of me are racist. Everything is racist. Right. And if everything's racist, nothing's racist. And we understand that. But now they've added systemic to it. So it adds this pseudo social science veneer when then people feel like, oh, or was, maybe you're not racist. It's systemic racism. Oh, OK. It's kind of like uh, like the word strategic. You know, you add strategic to something and people all of a sudden go, oh, you're not just an analyst. You're a strategic analyst. Oh, OK. You know, strategic or senior. Right. Oh, oh, oh. people all of a sudden are supposed to think differently about whatever that is modifying a a senior advisor, a senior blah, 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 whatever it is. But now here we are with systemic racism being dissected eloquently and expertly in this essay and being declared a conspiracy theory. And you know liberals will lose their minds over this because people don't like to think that they've been swindled, that they've been fooled. And you can't read this and think that there's not a large portion of American society that has bought into this concept that's indefensible on the merits. That's just factually, bizarrely wrong. Uh, he writes, quote, it is usually the case with any conspiracy theory that the identity of the conspirator is a matter of some moment. There may be purported conspiracies whose some names are known or they may remain shadowy figures of mystery. But someone is at fault for the ills the theory claims to explain. Not so with systemic racism. The system, a college or a profession or the nation as a whole, is said to be suffused with racism and asking for the identity of the culprits is supposed to be a sure sign of the inquirer's naivete. The fault for systemic racism is no one's in particular and everyone's in general, or at least everyone not belonging to the aggrieved class of victims. This unique feature of systemic racism theory is indicated by its very name. As Brian Garner observes in Garner's Modern English Usage. Oh, this we get into the difference. Here. End quote. He talks about systemic versus uh, systematic. 
Uh, so, but a thing, quote, is systemic if it affects or is a feature of an entire system, system wide. Notice that no personal agency is required or indeed is any part of a systemic phenomenon. And there's the beauty of systemic racism theory. Who's to blame is never answered with any particularity that will fix responsibility on known persons. For the answer is why everyone. What could be more impervious to contrary evidence than a wholly impersonal conspiracy theory about human behavior? No one is responsible, and so everyone is responsible. And therefore, who, end quote there, who gets to be the arbiter of how we tackle this and deal with this? Well, the high priests of systemic racism theory, don't you see? Ah, it all starts to come together, doesn't it? So I'm, I'm, tr- I'm walking you through this because this matters. They're using this concept of systemic racism to justify why your kids are learning in school now, the 1619 Project, and how America is a systemically racist country. They're using this theory to jam these, you know, diversity and inclusion program brainwashing uh, programs d- down, down your throat in, in, con- in companies across the country. Mandatory now. And they have this, like, white fragility uh, fraud, you know, this con woman who goes around talking about the white fragility concept all the time. Oh, isn't that amazing? If you don't agree with my systemic racism idea, clearly you're like a fragile white person. See, it's all it's all meant to avoid debate, discussion, reason, argument, truth. It's all meant to avoid truth. It's meant to prey on people's emotions. You want to you want to be thought of a certain way. You want people to like you. You don't want to be under attack. You don't want to be under suspicion. So you go along with it. In that sense, it's actually very Soviet in its feeling too. just go along. Don't don't raise any issues. Go along. If you go against them, you're a counter revolutionary. You must be destroyed. And that's where it derives so much of its power from. I wanted to talk to you about this because. One, it's always noteworthy when journalists like the editor-in-chief of Newsweek is willing to uh, abandon central precepts, central tenets, central uh, promises of the profession, right? A doctor who doesn't keep confidence with someone's medical records is not worthy of being a doctor anymore. A journalist who does not believe in the free expression of ideas and does not think that when you print something that you know, is a is an opinion that one of your editors has put forward, pulling it to try to contextualize it in a way you won't offend your readers is doing intellectual violence to the First Amendment. But more than any of that, I suppose I just want to put you in a position today. Those of you who do me the great honor of listening to this show and we're about to get into all the news and you'll know everything that's happened in the, in the country by listening to this show, to be sure. But I do think the philosophy matters because when someone now thinks they've got you cornered or when one of your children comes home from school and thinks that there's only one answer to this question when someone says to you are you saying you don't believe in systemic racism the answer to that question can now be yes that is what i am saying prove me wrong show me otherwise and that my friends will drive the left completely insane 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. When in doubt, friends, you know what you can always do if you want to try to win an argument and you have a losing argument? Just lie, right? That's what the libs do. I'm not recommending you do this. I'm just saying. It's what the left does. Here is host of The View, Sonny Hostin, who has to, has to clean up the, the mess that BLM activists made over the weekend. Just to clean it up on TV. Here we go. Play six. According to a new Fox News poll, more voters classify BLM unrest as riots rather than protests. And that is scary because that's feeding into this narrative that the Trump campaign has been putting out there. And if you really look at the facts, 93 percent, 93 percent of protests are nonviolent, nonviolent. And in fact, when Trump has put in force, has put in uh, federal enforcement out of those 93 percent, the Violence ratchets up, right? And and so more than five percent of the protests actually that are linked to the Black Lives Matter movement that was met by force by authority was met by force by authorities compared to one percent of other sorts of demonstrations like COVID uh, protests or or protests about uh, being un- unhappy about not being able to you know go to the barber right. shop. And so this is manufactured right. by the Trump campaign. And I just wish that people understood that and knew that and just looked up the real facts about protests in this country. I, I know that was painful to listen to, but I wanted you to hear it. This is a person who is paid seven figures to go on TV and be a babbling moron. Everything that she said there is absurd. It's either just untrue or ridiculously stupid. It's embarrassing, but she's got to carry the water for her side. She's got to be on Team Democrat. And that means she's going to have to say dumb things. Now, I actually think she's smarter than what she's presenting on TV, but she's It's like she's the lawyer for BLM. She's going to have to try to do whatever she can to keep them out of jeopardy. Nothing else matters. No integrity, no honesty, no intellectual decency in any of this. You know know what the the percentage of protests that should be peaceful for a movement that claims to be about about justice is? A hundred percent. That's what it should be. A hundred percent. You know what they do when they burn down buildings and loot businesses and yell at people having... They attack innocent human beings who have done nothing to them, who have no part of this. But even beyond that, they are inciting violence against cops. Yes, that's right. Let's say it. They are inciting violence against police officers across the country because they claim, and this is a central claim, this is not a secondary, not a tertiary thing. They make the claim That police are hunting and murdering young black men out of vicious racism in a systemic way. There's that word again, systemic. And that is a lie. It's a lie. It's not happening. But people believe things that they're told that some people will take action on that. And that is what we saw over the weekend in California. Already early reports that, as I've been saying, oh, who wants to place bets that when you go through this guy's social media, the shooter of those two Los Angeles sheriff's deputies, who wants to place bets? You're going to find out. Big BLM supporter. Oh, I'll take that bet. I'll give somebody 10 to 1 odds on that bet. But the media is, oh, we don't know yet. We don't know if BLM has anything to do. That's right. Just delay and delay and run cover 
for evil. Good job, Democrats. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Unleash the deep state. I know it's not as cool as Unleash the Kraken, but you get the idea. That's that's what the Democrat establishment wants right now. That, that's what they're pushing for. That's what they're hoping for with all of this. You're starting to see it all happen. Wow, it's so easy. No matter how humiliated you were in the past, no matter how clear it is that a government employee was engaged in the most grotesque politicization of his or her job, even if they violated uh, sacred principles of their own institution, even if they humiliated the bureaucracy with their actions, the deep state squad is getting plenty of airtime these days. No, no problem there at all. Easy to get on TV to be a deep stater and attack Trump. And we're just seeing the beginning of this last of this last effort. Let's start with oh, there's so many of them. Let's start with Peter Strzok. Peter Strzok, here he is. Uh, here, here's what he says. How, how do we get them to start talking about Russia again? This is part of the plan. How, how do we get the libs? an opportunity to call out Russia uh, because that's what they want to do. They want to talk about Russia because even though you might say, Buck, hold on, hold on a second, hold on a second, Buck. I don't know why I got kind of text in there, but hold on, Buck. No, but really, even if you would say, we, haven't we proven that this is all nonsense? Haven't we proven that this is false? This is, this is strange. This is absurd. They would come back and say, what do you mean? That whole special counsel thing? They just didn't find all the facts, man. There's just more out there. Ah, almost like a conspiracy theory that can never be proven wrong. It was never even, and I don't know why this didn't catch on more. This was my initial theory about Russia collusion. Even if Trump was willing to be that underhanded, which I do not believe, but just from a pure perspective of of risk management for trump and those around him it's the dumbest idea in the world you're gonna work with the russians we're told the russians wanted trump to win what would they get what would trump have ever gained from working with the russians on this and then think of the risk that he's taking and at any point the russians can drop that it's it's such a dumb theory you have to be a a blanking, blinkered moron to think that this, but the country is full of people. There are losers without a thing to add to public discourse. They're not intelligent. They're not funny. They're not who have, you know, hundreds of thousands of social media followers now because they did the whole Russia collusion thing. Oh, I'm going to get to the bottom of the Russia collusion. Oh, this is, he's a Russian asset. And they just say, it was just feeding into this mania. These people should have really just followed the Kardashians or something instead, not tried to stretch their little brains so far. Unbelievable. Now Russia's coming back, even though we've all been talking about this, even though we've had all these discussions. Now Russia's coming back. Here's Peter Strzok. Meet the press, the gold standard of political journalism, right? Meet the press. Here's Peter Strzok talking about how well i'll let him i'll let all of peter struck say it play 17 
Look, I think it is clear. I believed at the time in 2016, and I continue to believe that Donald Trump is compromised by the Russians. And when I say that, I mean that they hold leverage over him that makes him incapable of placing the national interest, the national security ahead of his own. That takes a variety of forms. I worked counterintelligence for over 20 years, and I recruited spies during that time, and I defended against those people who were being recruited in our government. One of the largest ways that people in foreign governments gain leverage, and certainly in the case of the president, is through financial entanglements. And I think when you take a look at the, the Trump financial enterprise, particularly its relationship with Russian, with Russian monies, and potentially those related to organized crime and other elements, that those interactions have placed him in a position where the Russians have leverage over him and are able to influence his actions. Based on what? Top counterintelligence guy, Peter Strzok, uh, FBI and CIA, people are never going to think of them the same way. And they shouldn't. Not after these morons have gotten through with lying to the public. Okay, there are financial entanglements. Where? And also Trump's a billionaire. How much of a financial entanglement do we really think we're going to have here? How much of a financial entanglement are we really talking about? All right. That's something that we need to know. Because they've also told us that based on the emoluments clause, they've also told us that President Trump has had his foreign policy influenced by diplomats, buying cheeseburgers and having martinis at the Trump Hotel. I'm not kidding. Oh, well, they're influencing him. Yeah, the, the 60 different countries that have had diplomats go have a cheeseburger or eat the delicious bacon at the Trump Hotel. Uh, they're, they're buying his foreign policy $10 at a time. Again, this is idiocy. I mean, intelligent people can't believe that Washington Post writes editorials on this. What kind of leverage do they think they have? Meaning, what kind of leverage do they think the Russians have against Trump? What would it be? Oh, they're going to promise him a, a hotel? The, the guy's already a billionaire. He's built the, a, a global brand now that people will remember, not just for decades, probably for centuries to come. I mean, Trump is now in the history books. And, and the Russians have leverage. Remember when it was uh, the P-tape? But we're supposed to forget that the FBI believed that the CIA believed that at least the deep state libs who worked there did. They thought that there really was a Trump, uh, a Trump video where he's getting a golden shower from prostitutes. I mean, how much dumber is it going to get? They've learned nothing, though. You see, they can't they can't allow themselves. It's like somebody who's a religious zealot can't ever answer any questions about their beliefs because even the, sm the smallest break in that in that in that mental armor will bring the whole thing crumbling down right even the the smallest chip in the wall of their belief can bring the whole thing down that's what people with weak faith people that don't have real arguments and understanding for their beliefs they're very sensitive about it it's true of the deep staters so you have struck and then you've got vinman the president oh here we go here we go play play uh, people this guy the whole whistleblower thing was this this loser who's like, I'm more important than Trump. I should be making a foreign policy on Ukraine. I was going to be Ukraine's defense minister. You hear about that story? Oh, yeah. Play 11. The president suggested you are a never Trumper. 
Are you a never Trumper? I joined this administration. Uh, I, I joined the president's team. I joined this administration uh, well into this administration uh, with the the hopes of being able to do my job, with the hopes of being able to advance U.S. national security interests. Uh, I could say that I am now a never Trumper. I was not a never Trumper before. Uh, I was nonpartisan. I, I would be, regardless of what administration, I would just try to do the best I could to advance national security interests. Uh, but I think as the president's attacked and politicized me directly, we and um, in taking a very sober view of where this president is taking this country, the divisions, um, the catering to, to our adversaries, the undermining of national security interests, that I am absolutely a never-Trumper. Oh, now he's a never-Trumper. Because the president was mean to him. But he wasn't a never-Trumper when he decided to try to undermine the sitting president of the United States with this nonsense over the over Ukraine phone call. Right? And the whistleblower. Remember, remember Adam Schiff? No, you cannot talk. You cannot try to find that may. The identity of the whistleblower is sacred. It's sacred. A total construct. Total fraud, by the way. No reason we can't know who the whistleblower is trying to take down a president of the United States. And it basically was Vindman all along. Yes, I swear. Uh, but the, the libs never I, I say they never learn, but it's really just they never change. They never change their mind. They never change their attacks. They never change on on any of this. Uh, they're, they're impossible. Uh, rather, they're incapable of self-correction, a very important tool. In life, can you self-correct? Can you be honest with yourself about who you are, what you're doing, what you think, what you say? And is that the best version of you? Is that the most truthful version of you? Liberals, again, if you pull one brick out of the wall of their their unearned self-esteem, their unearned virtue, they're worried that the whole thing comes tumbling down. That's why they have to shut themselves off from discourse. That's why they're not willing to have a real exchange of ideas, and they create all of these endless echo chambers for themselves and then try to shut down the few places where conservatives have real reach in the media for ideas that half the country shares, but only about 10% of the media is willing to share. Oh, isn't that interesting? But the never-Trumpers out there, you're going to see all of them. It's going to be like the the best of never-Trumpers. I mean, the the compilation series that nobody wants, that nobody would buy. You know, now that's what I call Never Trump. That's what's going to be. Remember those CDs? That's what's going to be coming your way. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Yeah, I'm not doing it for political reasons. I want the vaccine fast. If this were like uh, the, I call it the O'Biden, if this were the O'Biden administration, you wouldn't have a vaccine for years because they would have taken two or three years. I've speeded up the process with the FDA. They've been great. Uh, Dr. Hahn has been great, the head of the FDA. Uh, Alex Azar has been fantastic. You know, it's it's been uh, incredible what we've done because we're going to have a vaccine in a matter of uh, a matter of weeks. It could be four weeks. It could be eight weeks. But we're going to have it. We're getting very good results, and it's really looking good. And they're great companies: Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, Moderna. We have a lot of great companies. It's not just one, and they're all doing really well. It's going to be soon. Now, will it be before the election? Uh, it could be in terms of we have something. And we'll start delivering it immediately upon getting it. But we're, we're very close to getting the vaccine. And that's something I look forward to. 
You know, we've gone from, thanks to the lockdown libs, we've gone from lockdown until vaccine is crazy. We'd never do that to, okay, we're locking down until a vaccine. They didn't really tell us that. They just decided we're doing it to now. So it looks like we're going to have to lock down until long after we have a vaccine. And for all this, I just want to say thanks, Fauci and company, because this is the biggest self-inflicted policy disaster of any nation in generations. This is where we're going to look back on this because there, there's no benefit to so much of what we've done. Uh, there's just a lot of people who are afraid, who are being used, who are refusing to have open conversations and, and open debate about what's really best for us to do under the situation. So, yeah, that's where we are. And now they're trying to say things about the vaccine that look, I, I understand some of you. I understand some of you have your have concerns about the bodies governing us when it comes to this right now. The CDC messed up the testing originally, right? The FDA. But I also know that vaccine testing like this is, if anything, uh, too cautious. And they know that the eyes of the whole country are going to be on this at every stage. There are multiple vaccines in trial right now and looking like it's, they're going to work. But put aside for a second whether you're even going to get this vaccine or not yourself. I mean, I'm probably going to get it based on what I read about it so that I just have a greater degree of not worrying about infecting my parents, let's say. And another, even though I think we're through the pandemic, 90 uh, percent through the pandemic at this point, I'm not expecting a major second wave this winter. And we'll see, you know, but then again, everyone's been wrong a lot on this whole thing. But I'm pointing to to what the Democrat narrative around this is right now, because for months, let's just be clear, for months they have been saying Oh, let's listen to the experts. But now, for obvious political purposes, they are turning around and telling us, eh, I don't know about the experts on this one. Bill Gates, he who, the, the billionaire who funds the IHME that had those horrifically wrong, horrifically wrong uh, predictions about this virus and what's going to happen. Uh, Bill Gates has wondered, according to Bloomberg, whether the FDA can be trusted on a COVID vaccine right now. Oh, okay. So it was wear a mask because the CDC says so. Well, it still is that, right? Wear a mask because the CDC says so. The vaccine, though, I can't agree that it's safe, they'll tell you. Because the FDA can't be trusted under Trump. Why should we trust the CDC on masks, but not the FDA on vaccines? I mean, you know, can they just be consistent? But, you know, Bill Gates and the whole lib intelligentsia and the media, they're going to be wondering about this particular vaccine safety right until about November 4th. Then suddenly it will be safe and mandatory, I bet, if Biden wins. Don't you see? That's part of the whole Biden miracle. Biden wins. And then, oh, well, now we've really had the time to see that this vaccine is really going to work. And then they also have a justification for a mass inoculation, mandatory inoculation program that Biden will take credit for. And that will be also 
the excuse for finally letting us go back to normal life. And it will be timed perfectly with the Biden-Harris campaign's political needs. That's what we're facing right now. Let's let's all be honest about that. That's what's going on right now. All right. There's no other reason to explain the sudden concerns that the FDA has about all this. There's no other reason to. I'm sorry that the people have about the FDA. There's no other reason for this. Um, And it's becoming more and more clear. You know, Cal Cunningham, who's down in uh, running in North Carolina against Tom Tillis. This is for they had a Senate debate last night in North Carolina, and he told 10 million North Carolinians that he's not going to take an FDA approved COVID vaccine. That's what he said last night. No, he's not. He's not going to take it. No, no. Now, look, not because he thinks vaccines in general are problematic for the immune system or that vaccines have heavy metals in them or all these other things that you hear. And look, some people in this audience, I disagree. I think vaccines have saved a whole lot of lives. And I think the numbers back that up. But. You can direct your angry emails about that to producer Mark. Uh, This is not opposition to the vaccine because of concerns about this is opposition to the vaccine because they don't want people to think that we've beaten covid before they cast their votes in this presidential election. That's it. That's it. So after posturing as the pro science party for seven months of covid, Democrats are about to wage the most dishonest anti-vax campaign imaginable, even though it will directly cost some American lives. Because there are very at-risk elderly people uh, who, you know, look, it, it is for, for those individuals getting a flu vaccine, even though it's uh, hit and miss, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, it's considered, in the grand scheme of things, good medicine for senior citizens to get flu vaccines. Uh, for those people to not get the vaccine because of the Democrat scare campaign here is all really just because they place beating orange man bad over the health of the American people. Nothing else is allowed to matter. Anything that gets in the way of that must be destroyed because the libs have gone full psycho here. They don't care about your health. They don't care about that's all just pablum, all just talking points. So that you say, oh, okay, maybe Biden's not such a bad guy. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. But we have to do much more. And when the president says all they have to do is rake the leaves uh, and ignore the, the, the climate challenge that we face, it's really quite sad. And I understand that he had an anti-science rally is what... The press reported it was an anti-science rally in uh, uh, Nevada. So you see the uh, the challenge is a clear one. But I don't have any uh, complaint yeah. about any of the cooperation that is being received from the national level uh, to our state in California. I can't speak for the other states. That's right. Listen to Chief Scientist Nancy Pelosi. Hey, it was it was at a science rally at that science rally. Oh, my gosh. They're going to they're going to cling to this mask mania for as long as they can. It's, it's the only thing they've got left because they abandoned social distancing with the protests. So they know they're going to get clobber on that. They can try to lie to people, gaslight us. But at the end of the day, they abandoned social distancing for BLM, which, as we now know, beyond any doubt, is a destructive, dangerous and and uh, ultimately 
really pointless movement, unless you think the point of it was to get Democrats elected and to hurt Trump and all that. Then I guess it served some purpose and to allow people to express their resentment and rage through a political prism or in the name of a a political ideology. And that means smashed windows, stolen merchandise, looted businesses, burned out buildings. Sure. BLM did, did all of those things. But Trump held a rally in Nevada. I think Trump should hold more of these rallies. I think the Democrats are worried that he's running up the scoreboard and they don't want to see that. They don't think that that's acceptable. They want to do anything they can to undermine him at this stage. And you have, in my mind at least, uh, a Democrat party that is desperately clinging to this notion of the pro-science party that anyone who just gives it a few moments honest attention will come back and say, hold on a second. You mean the party that believes men can get pregnant? There are 37 genders uh, that... There is somehow no difference between men and women, except sexism is very real. That gender transition can occur before someone even hits puberty. I mean, you believe that and that a fetus is not a baby and that party. Oh, and, and that the, the Mother Earth gets angry and spew fire, spews fire all over the forests in California. And that's why that's happening. That party wants to lecture us all on science. You know, I worked out yesterday in the gym and I for at least a period of time because there was another gentleman in the gym. I had to have my mask on. So I'm doing deadlifts and like and like a a little old lady because I've had so much muscle atrophy over the last seven months. But I'm doing my deadlifts and I got my mask on and I'm breathing really hard. And all I'm thinking is, how does anyone think that is the, the, the air I'm spewing this stuff out? The air is just. Going above and below the mask. Just I'm I'm breathing really hard. I'm shooting it all over. The mask is not stopping my air particles from flying all over. It's not doing it. But it doesn't matter, right? This is this is the this is what the science tells us. And the science keeps changing, but they're sure about it. They're sure about it. And then there's uh oh oh, let's hear from from the Lib's other chief chief scientist, Don Lemon. That's a terrifying thought. Play nine. Shame on the president for leading these people into this situation, but they're adults. Why are they doing this? Hmm? Adults who should know better. Science, facts. Good things are happening, he says. Good things are happening? Well, not with the pandemic, but you wouldn't know it from that crowd. Not with the pandemic or the wildfires or the hurricane, but the president doesn't want to talk about any of that. He is willing to risk the safety of his own supporters, as I just showed you, just for the picture of a packed crowd indoors so he can pretend everything is back to normal. Are you the mark? Are you being used? Hey, ha, 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 come in. Uh, uh, Really? Are you willing to put your lives in danger? Okay, that may be okay, fine, you want to do that. But what about other people's lives? What about the vulnerable in society, in your family, that you are going to come into contact with? But think about someone other than yourself. Oh, oh! now, now it's all about the libs want us to be thinking about other people. They, they want you to be thinking about other people. But they don't want you taking a vaccine, even if the FDA says it's safe. But they want you to listen to the experts, but only when it comes to CDC saying wear a mask. Even though the CDC has changed its mask guidance so many times, I can't even keep it all straight. They want you to pretend that by wearing a mask when you enter a restaurant and then taking it off when you sit down at the restaurant, you're believing the science. They want you to believe that it's necessary for me in a gym that's probably 
you know, 1500 square feet by myself to wear a mask while I'm on a treadmill because that's protecting people. This is idiocy. It's not science. It just you apply facts, reason and logic to this and realize that it's scaremongering. It's lunacy. It's absurd. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to. You don't have to be as well read as Nancy Pelosi and Don Lemon. And you can figure this stuff out. And then there's the other ways in which they're deeply anti-science. And then there's the other ways in which they've got problems. For one thing, I mean, the, the Green New Deal is really just a crazy religious belief for libs. Mike Pence has called this out. Play 13. Joe Biden wants to bury our economy under an avalanche of red tape like his own version of the Green New Deal. You know, the only thing green about the Green New Deal is how much green it's going to cost all of us if they ever sign it into law. It's true. It's true. But they they think that they have the answers for the climate. They think they have the answers for California. You know, you know what the truth is about California? Fascinating. This guy, Blumberg, who is from Copenhagen, uh, from uh, Denmark, Copenhagen, part of the Copenhagen consensus. I think he runs it. Uh, this guy had an editorial in the New York Post laying out some of the points that I've been saying to you. The one thing that I that I will be honest with you. So here's what I knew before I read this, just from doing very basic research. Two degrees, maybe close to three, two degrees warmer in California. And they're telling you. Uh, over the that's about over the last 30, 40 years. And they're saying that's why there's the wildfires are so much worse. OK, be in a room that goes from 68 to 70 degrees and tell me if you think that that's going to cause that much of an atmospheric difference that there's a ma- there are massive conflagrations that occur. OK, put that aside for a second. I mean, look, just think this through. You don't have to be a, just think it through. And then also on the issue of how these are the worst fires ever. The wets are wet. The hots are hotter. The fires are burning more the hurricanes and blah, blah blah all that stuff right okay let's think about it. let's think about that shall we for just a moment uh, this guy blumberg points out that there were much bigger fires seasonally that would burn in california uh in the 1800s that it wasn't until they started to apply some forest uh, forestry management to these areas of California that you, you would have much larger areas that would burn much larger year in, year out. And that the single biggest issue here is that there has not been uh, there has not been forestry management applied to this so that there's a tremendous amount. There's years and years worth of kindling undergrowth that builds up, which means that when it goes, the fire burns much hotter, much stronger, spreads, spreads much faster uh, than it did in the past. But that's because we have changed the way we deal with forests. But it used to be that there would be every year there'd be a big, big fires back the 1800s of California, big fires that would burn a whole lot more, much more than what is currently being burned. And now because we've we have f- firefighting that we do, but not a lot of forestry management. Yeah, it doesn't burn quite as far, but we keep running into this problem because of all the undergrowth. So it's managing the forest. But even even just put that aside for a moment, because Libs will argue about that. Let's go to the climate change thing here. Gavin Newsom, governor of California, and Eric, uh, I think his name is Eric, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles, they take the position that if 
We want this to stop. We need to lead the world on climate. And if you think that a climate agreement that might get signed that would make Gavin Newsom happy in the next five or ten years is going to do a damn thing about forest fires in California, you're a moron. But Gavin Newsom knows that he's, not, he's talking to people who it's not rational. They've been trained to believe this. Does anyone really think that California changing its CO2 output? That, that's, that's the thing. You know, if they've got more solar panels in California, if they have less CO2 emissions in California, that's going to change the climate in a way that would affect these forest fires. That is a lunacy. That's a lo- and you know it. Just think it through. It's a clear, a clear lunacy. But that's what they're pushing for you. That's what the, this is what the party of science wants you to know. This is what the party of science. They're, they're not they're not about science. They're not about knowledge. They're about emotion and coercion and power. And all this other stuff with the environment is just they've replaced God with Mother Earth. It's pathetic. It's regressive. But that's what they've done. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We've heard from Washington Governor Jay Inslee. We heard from um, California Governor Gavin Newsom refer to these as climate fires. Why do you think that terminology is appropriate here? If we look over the last four decades, what we see is just a steady decrease in the snowpack, a steady warming of the ocean off the coast, a steady increase in how dry the forests are and, and, and how long that period is. And it just sets all the conditions for these these fires. The, the, the president, uh, I know, visited California and, and uh, said he just thinks, well, uh, things will just get, get better on their own. This is, this is willful ignorance. This is putting your hands over your eyes and your ears saying, I see no climate change. I hear no climate change. There is no climate change. Everything will get better. Uh, wishful uh, ignorance. It just it has resulted on the 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 uh, pandemic front of of within a week. We'll have 200,000 Americans who have died. And what we're seeing in the West is just a, a steady uh, scorching of our, our forests and 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 now the, the incineration of our towns. I mean, what do they think that California is going to uh, let, let's assume that this guy's right on the science here. That's Senator Merkley. Uh, what is the state of California supposed to do about this exactly? Or let, let's say that all the Republicans, because we're the big, bad, evil people that don't care about everything burning down. What are we supposed to do to stop this from happening? Oh, stop global CO2 emissions. Does anyone Say this out loud and not hear how moronic that is. The only way to stop the fires in California is to limit global CO2 emissions. It's not going to happen, folks. It's not going to happen. And as I've already told you, there are a lot of other reasons why these fires are what they are. And if they really wanted to, to deal with this, they would have to do controlled fires. But controlled fires come with some risk. Never, they're never entirely controlled. They also burn a lot of stuff that people get upset about. Environmentalists get upset. Oh, you're burning the trees. I don't want to do that. Some other nature comes in and just does it. That's what ends up happening. But, you know, friends, 
It's Trump is anti-science. Trump is anti-women. Trump is a racist. Trump is a traitor. You know, all all the things we've heard before. That's what you're going to be treated to this time around. Also, that we can vote for Joe Biden, who we all recognize is a doddering old buffoon. But nonetheless, they want you to think that he's going to make everything so much better. So much better. That's the plan. Oh, and they want to blame Trump supporters for all uh, Trump supporters. Somehow the reason for everything, we're the reason for the pandemic, we're the reason for climate change, you know, we're the reason for all of these things. They keep wanting to tell us what to do based on their idiotic ideas and also somehow think that we're the reason that all these things are happening. Isn't that fascinating? Here's uh, Joy Ann Reed still hasn't found the the hateful bigots who hacked into her blog from 10 years ago to make her a homophobe. Uh, you know, she said the FBI was investigating. We still haven't, gosh, still haven't found those people that hacked into hacked into her blog, in quotes. Yeah, sure. Here she is, play seven. I mean, a lot of people have been giving up stuff, giving up parties with their families, birthday parties with their grandparents and, and for their kids, funerals. People have been skipping funerals. People have been making tremendous sacrifices to try to end this nightmare. And Trump fans are taking the opportunity to fly to other states, drive to other states, go attend a mask-free rally. We're looking here. The crowds were not wearing masks in front of Trump. They festooned some behind him so that they'd be on camera looking like they were doing the right thing. But the ones in the crowd weren't. Those people are going to be in in the Walmart with, with people who didn't choose to be, you know, completely irresponsible. This strikes me as... The reason we can't get past this, because there are some people, it's not just Trump, it's other people who are deciding to take risks with the rest of our lives. Just so much stupidity in one soundbite. It's amazing, isn't it? Was she was she uh, so critical of all the BLM protests, which, yeah, some of them were masks. They weren't social distancing and a lot of them weren't wearing masks. Did she take the time to say that we had lost the right to, f- to have funerals and birthday parties and graduations? But BLM was having their massive protests for weeks and weeks on the streets so they could talk about how much they hate cops and how the white oppressor is destroying America as per critical race theory. Um, did she have a problem with any of that? No. No, but she's got a problem with Trump holding rallies where not everybody is, is wearing a mask. Uh, you know, they, they mask shame selectively and wonder why we don't take this more seriously hmm other countries that have decided that that masking have recognized that masking is not some huge weapon against this virus we don't want to hear from them we, we don't want to listen to that we, we've decided that this this is now it you know you mask or you're a bad person and this is this is absurd but this is where we are uh, this is what they will say to you oh speaking of absurdity here's bro cuomo on the uh, BLM shooting over the weekend. Need to hear this. Play eight. The extent of what we know, that's it. I just showed it to you. Anyone who says they know why this happened is pushing an agenda because we don't know anything other than what you just saw. And there are a lot of crazy people. I know we don't like that word with mental health awareness, and I'm all about that. But you know what? That guy either has a bad mind, a bad soul, or a bad brain, or a combination of all of them. Yeah, let's not jump to conclusions that the guy that killed two police officers in South Central Los Angeles, I'm sorry, that tried to kill two sheriff's deputies in South Central Los Angeles over the weekend. uh, Let's not jump to conclusions and think that maybe the 
constant drumbeat in the media of cops are murdering black men constantly. Uh, let's not assume that that had anything to do with this. Or I should say, let's not analyze the situation and come to that preemptive conclusion subject to repudiation by the facts as they additionally come in. Right. Sure. This is just like what they do with terror, with jihadist terrorism. We may never know the motive. The guys running around yelling Allahu Akbar with a suicide vest on saying he's doing this for ISIS, but we may never know the real motive. And with this guy, oh, let's not jump to conclusions. Let's wait until there are other things in the news cycle and people forget that there were also BLM protesters on video blocking ambulance access for these deputies as they were trying to fight for their lives. Let's just let's pretend like none of let's not connect any of the dots. That's right. Cuomo, for his audience's benefit, will pretend to be a moron because it makes the audience feel, oh, we don't know what happened here. Yeah, you, you know, you never really know when you're talking about a motive. You make the best guess you can with the facts as presented. And this one seems pretty clear. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we have a lot of countries that want to come in. So for years and years, these clowns that like to criticize me, well, we disagree, we disagree. Well, they never got anything. They never got anything done. They've been fighting for peace in the Middle East. And then when I came in, I was told it was an impossible thing. You could never get it done. And we went around the other way. Instead of dealing with the Palestinians, we took the money away. We used to give them $750 and and they treat us badly. I said, why do they treat us badly? We give them all this money. Nobody ever did this. I took it away. Uh, They're going to make a deal. You watch. But we started dealing with other people. And everyone said this couldn't happen. And we made a deal with UAE, led by a man, Mohammed, who's a great leader, a great warrior. And we made a deal with UAE, then Bahrain uh, came in, and we have many others going to be coming in over a short period of time. And uh, the Palestinians will ultimately come in, too. And you're going to have peace in the Middle East without being stupid and shooting everybody and killing everybody and having blood all over the sand. President Trump letting everybody know there are deals that are getting done. It's not just all talk. Deals that are getting done in the Middle East, increasing stability, helping our ally Israel and and bringing more Muslim nations closer to uh, the the U.S. foreign policy goals in the region. Let's talk to somebody about exactly how momentous this all is. We have our friend David Ifun with us now. He's the editor in chief of the Algaminer. David, as always, great to have you. Always a pleasure, but so first, tell me what what's going on today. We got the White House, the Abraham Accords, deals getting signed. Let everybody know what's happening. Well, I think the, uh, I've said this once before, um, but I think this best captures it. The president's approach to dealing with the Middle East can best be described as a massacre of sacred cows. And in that clip that you just played, the president referred to it, the approach that they've taken, where they've taken, really looked at everything with a fresh set of eyes and come, came to the, the conflict riled the region for so long from a completely new direction. And that is really to focus on the countries that are much closer to Israeli interests, um, have a much more pragmatic approach to their foreign policy, and those that are sort of standing on the threshold of peace with the Jewish state. Start with a low-hanging fruit, if you will, and the rest will follow. So today we saw a signing on the White House lawn 
uh, aptly named the Abraham Accords, named after the children of, named for the children of Abraham. Obviously, Abraham's two children, Isaac and Ishmael, are said to represent the Muslim world and the Jewish world, bringing them both together in a historic moment with the United States brokering a deal between Israel and the Gulf states of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, the first such peace deal in the region since 1994, when you and me, Buck, were kids. Indeed. So, I don't know about you, I was. No, 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 for, for sure. Uh, I, I was, a, I was a, a young Buck back then. But David, this, these deals will mean what? Assuming they're implemented as planned. What are the changes here? You know, we hear about normalization of relations between Israel, the UAE, Israel and Bahrain. How big a deal is that? Well, what does that actually mean for the people in those countries? Well, the incredible thing about these agreements, as opposed to past agreements that Israel has signed with both Egypt and Jordan, is that what we're seeing on the ground for the people, as you say, is an incredible warmth and an incredible willing to cooperate and to work together and to get to know each other and to sort of integrate societies. So there's a huge business and economic component here. There's uh, air travel running between the two countries, including over Saudi Arabia, who for the first time has agreed to allow air travel from Israeli aircraft across its airspace. But there's also a security element, which is super important. There's a lot of shared concern between Israel and the Gulf states and others in the region over Iranian expansionism, which is a big issue. Of course, all forms of extremism on the ground. But I think beyond that, there is a whole host of challenges that are faced by states in the region, uh, primarily water challenges, agricultural challenges, cybersecurity challenges that Israel has faced and found incredible solutions to. And some of the biggest challenges that are facing the UAE and Bahrain today have easy out-of-the-box solutions that have been developed in Israel. So what's incredible about this deal is that it's not necessarily moral or ideological or charitable in terms of how these states have, have changed their view. It's interest first. The interests have aligned in a way that has brought people together. And that's really the, the bedrock of a long-lasting, warm, far-reaching, secure, stable peace that we're seeing emerging today. Speaking to David Afoon, editor-in-chief of the Algaminer, a great news site that focuses on uh, Israeli, Jewish, and Mideast issues. Uh, David, what would you like to see now? We don't know if Trump is going to get four more years or not. Let's assume for our purposes that he does what would you like to see as the follow-on agreements actions and now that it sounds like we have the we have momentum here perhaps we even have a framework for a more durable future uh, mid-east peace what do you want to see as the next steps if trump gets those four more years and has his team pursuing these goals well i'm pretty confident that the outcome of this election in the united states will tell us a lot about the future of peace and stability in that region. There's no question that there are some actors that are sort of lukewarm, sitting on the fence, that are waiting to see the outcome of the election. There's an understanding that the America's diplomatic relations are going to head in a very different direction if there is to be a Biden administration. And um, 
they want to wait and see what happens. They're not ready to quite jump in right, right now at a moment where things may change quite dramatically. So I'm pretty confident that those that are on the fence are waiting to see where things go and will jump in if Trump is reelected. There are also those that I wouldn't describe as sitting on the fence, but really malicious actors in the region, including the Iranians and, uh, and, and others like that, who are also trying to wait out the Trump administration in the hope that they're going to have a more charitable administration following the, the Trump administration. Certainly, there's indication from the Biden camp that he would sort of follow the Obama approach when it comes to dealings with Iran. And the Palestinians as well. I mean, they're, they're putting out statements. They're opposing the normalization that we've seen today. They're sort of jumping up and down. They're sulking. They're crying. They're not presenting any alternatives. Um, but it's pretty clear that, that their strategy in terms of moving forward is just to, to wait and see what happens. But if there is another four years of the Trump administration, they're going to be between a rock and a hard place. And they're going to have to take steps um, if they want to avoid a firm deterioration of their diplomatic standing. They're going to be forced to take steps, which is really necessary, this sort of jolt and earthquake under their feet to get them to move forward and to take the risks that are necessary for peace to come to the table and to get real and to get serious about it. But what would be the next realistic step in this process that if, if you could if we could get an agreement, a next agreement similar to the Bahrain or UAE deal, uh, what would be the country and what would it stipulate? Put leave aside the Palestinians for a second. Let's talk about other actors in the region. Well, there are there are a whole host of others that have, uh, you know, let's say, express tepid interest in the way things are developing. Uh, the, the most obvious is Oman. There was a there was a bit of a uh, um, you know a screw up with Sudan, where where a foreign ministry spokesman put out a statement saying that they were uh, jumping into to the circle of peace, as it's been referred to as well. But then they they walked it back. But I don't think they're too far down the line. The biggest prize, the big prize, is 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 Saudi Arabia, and the movement that we're seeing now, opening up the airspace. Uh, the very fact that Bahrain was part of the agreement that we saw today, and of course Bahrain is, is is almost a vassal state of Saudi Arabia, just sort of completely dependent on the Saudis for absolutely everything, uh, that couldn't have happened without uh, Saudi blessing and, and approval. So that's something that we could see um, coming up pretty soon. It's, it's more delicate there in terms of the Saudi geopolitical position. Um, but I think it's just a matter of time. It's inevitable. So you think we could get an Israeli, a U.S. brokered Israeli Saudi peace deal in the next four years of a Trump presidency, possibly? I do. And the chances of that happening are about, uh, let's say, 50 times more likely if Trump is reelected. David Afoon, everybody, the Algaminer. Check it out, algaminer.com. David, always good to have you on, my friend. We'll talk soon. Likewise. Take care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I like this story. I think it's good. Let, let's see what these professional athletes, superstar, millionaire celebrities are really all about. The L.A. County Sheriff calls on LeBron James here, according to CBS Los Angeles affiliate to step up to the plate and double the reward to find the gunman in the ambush of the uh, two deputies. Sheriff Alex Villanueva 
challenging Lakers star LeBron James to contribute to efforts to find the gunman who shot two Los Angeles County deputies at point blank range. Villanueva made the challenge during an interview on a local radio show. There are two private pledges totaling $75,000 in addition to the 100000 from the county, but the sheriff is calling on James to kick in 175000 or $350,000. I want to make a challenge to LeBron James, he said. I want you to match that and double that reward because I know you care about law enforcement. Quote, you expressed a very interesting statement on race relations and officer-involved shootings and the impact that it has on the African-American community. And I appreciate that. But likewise, we need to appreciate that respect for life goes across professions, races, creeds. And I'd like to see LeBron James step up to the plate and double that. Hmm. Do you think LeBron James is going to do this? No, of course not. Now, look, I, I know how the libs are going to try to uh, to defend this. It's like, oh, what is LeBron James supposed to be the one person who's. Yeah, but it's the principle. LeBron James could also just say, look, I'm not writing checks for everything here, but he could publicly state the shooting was was horrific and wrong and does not represent anything that Black Lives Matter is supposed to be about. He could very easily do that. Um, But no, instead we have Jameel Hill, who says insane stuff on social media on a regular basis. Uh, She says uh, she she had a, a response here. She said uh, that the sheriff, quote, shouldn't be using the cold blooded murder of two officers to bully a celebrity and further a bad narrative that demanding police accountability means you sanction violence against the police. Uh, End quote. No, that's not you don't you're not demanding accountability. No, 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 I, I like this is cute. This is clever. I like the little rewrite here that we always get from the libs on this. The basis of BLM is. The murder of unarmed black men is systemic, rooted in racism, widespread and continuous. That is a lie. But they don't say it's rare. They don't say that those officers are either often justified in the shootings that have become central to the BLM movement or it was a mistake. No, no, no. They won't. They don't say that. They just continue on with the lie. Police accountability. The officers involved in these things lose their jobs and face life in prison, even when sometimes they do. They have done a shooting that's entirely justified, justified under the law and under morality. But oh, no, now it's about police accountability. See, friends, how we bring this full circle, just like they want you to agree with systemic racism. Now you have to agree with police accountability. Are police not accountable? Show me where show me where the police are not accountable. And let's talk about this. Show me where cops murder unarmed black men with with no, uh, you know, with no consequences against them, against the officers. Show me where this is happening. Mike Brown. No, Mike Brown deserved to get shot. They can keep talking about this. And it's sad. And you never want anyone to get shot. But Mike Brown attacked a cop, according to black eyewitnesses and the DOJ According to Eric Holder and the Obama administration, Mike Brown got what was a legally justified shooting. But they still talk about this. Why? Why? They bring up Trayvon Martin. They say, oh, it's because he was wearing a hoodie. Trayvon Martin was shot by a Hispanic neighborhood watch guy. It wasn't even I don't think he was an officially part of it. He thought of himself as neighborhood watch. 
And Trayvon Martin was shot, at least in part, because he tried to bash the guy's head into the concrete and he happened to have a gun. It was a bad move for Trayvon Martin, who was an adult male and six feet tall and 180 pounds, despite the photo of a 12-year-old the media like to show all the time as the Trayvon Martin photo in the media. Right? Just like the Mike Brown photo was always him in his cap and gown. I don't even know if I could find a cap and gown photo of me. That's the only photo from all of his social media they'd use, though. Mike Brown, honor student. To read it, Bonfire of the Vanities, the, this was seen as, as a tactic that, that Tom Wolfe wrote about decades ago. Right? Take the person who may have even been an aggressor, but for the purposes of a specific narrative of racial injustice, turn them into some kind of a hero. Right? Jacob Blake, Kamala Harris, shows up and says that Jacob Blake, she's, she's proud of him. He's an alleged rapist, but she's proud of him. When will any of this madness stop? I don't know. People don't want to have discussions rooted in reality and and in what is obvious and what is visible and what we all know. Instead, they want to create narratives. Uh, they, They have a story. They stick to it. They put a lot of false assumptions in it. They put a lot of either uh, cherry picked or just flatly incorrect data in it. And then say, this is what we this is the conclusion you draw from this. And if you say, well, hold on, I don't draw that conclusion. They say you're not allowed to question it. We are, however, allowed to question the uh, critical race training, critical race theory training that the CDC was planning on doing in uh, contravention of the Trump executive order that was supposed to stop this kind of thing. Uh, they they go ahead with this anyway, and that tells you a lot about the the nature and the the uh, approach of of the deep state, doesn't it? But they they were planning at the Centers for Disease Control to do one of these training sessions where they talk about white oppression and white privilege, and you know how bad all the white stuff is that's going on. It's it's really awful, and and everyone's told uh, everyone's told that they have to agree with this. You have to even get on your knees. You know, the, quote, white allies in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where there were riots because the cops shot a guy who was Hispanic trying to stab an officer to death with a knife. They still had riots, though. BLM riots. The Hispanic guy trying to kill a cop with a knife. BLM riots anyway. Yeah, that's, that's the world we live in now. Uh, they told the white allies on video to get on their knees. That video is a get on your knees and beg forgiveness from the BLM gods. Yeah, I don't think I don't think so. Not, not on my watch. Ladies and gentlemen, not on my watch. But I'm happy to see that the CDC has been slapped down. And now the latest on this is that they will not be doing their critical race theory training, even though initially Christopher Rufo, who's tracking all this stuff down, said that they were moving forward with a critical race theory training program and he obtained leaked documents. It was a 13 week series called Naming, Measuring and Addressing the Impacts of Racism on the Health and Well-Being of the Nation. The first three training sessions were focused on racism, sexism, and systems of structured inequality. This is what they're going to be brainwashing CDC employees with. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I know it's now been aborted training, thanks to the president's executive order and the uh, the 
attention that was given to the plan to just go forward with it anyway. But uh, Christopher Rufo has actually obtained obtained the uh, info about these training sessions. And I think you should know what was being planned for critical race theory training within the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. Here you go. And this is all from Christopher Rufo, who's been the guy unearthing all, all of this information. He was on Tucker show recently. It's really fascinating stuff. In sessions, uh, well, the first three sessions, as we just discussed, were racism, sexism, and other systems of structure, uh, structured inequality. Then teaching CDC employees that they must address institutionalized racism and really set things right in the garden of a racist nation. This is all from the official training materials that they have already taught at the CDC in the past, I'm sure, and we're about to teach again, if it were not for the Trump executive order on this. In sessions six through nine, the CDC claims that, quote, racism is a public health crisis and that systemic racism. There you go. Systemic racism leads to police killings of unarmed black and brown men and women and lead to the disproportionate impact of covid-19 on communities of color. See, systemic racism, that's always that we've already talked about it. Well, what systemic what is systemic racism? Where does it exist within the system? Find me where it exists. Who's responsible for making it happen within this system? Who's pushing who's pushing the decisions or the framework that leads to this systemic racism? Rufo continues here in sessions 10 and 11. The trainers will teach CDC employees that they must target and destroy the values of focus on the individual, the myth of meritocracy and the myth of American exceptionalism and white supremacist ideology. All of this is textbook critical race theory. This is what is being taught, friends, end quote there, of uh, this is what is being taught in federal institutions. With your tax dollars, employees are being told this is what you must believe. Federal government bureaucrats are trained, right? That's that word, trained to think this way, trained to think this is true. And yet we're supposed to believe this is in any way helpful. This is going to build a better society. And in the final session of the CDC teaching, quote, employees are taught how to become activists. They will be encouraged to join an anti-racism collaborative with eight collective action teams focused on communications, making scientific publications anti-racist and influencing policy and legislation. The whistleblower who came to Rufo writes, quote, I thought maybe they would wisely cancel this training series. Instead, we got a message this morning confirming this was yesterday the pressure to participate is palpable, and if you don't, you will have to explain why you aren't a racist. That's right. Friends, in the middle of a pandemic, the CDC is spending time on white supremacy and destroying white supremacist ideas according to these training materials like the meritocracy exists. It's amazing, isn't it? But Russ Vaught, who is the director of OMB, he came out and said, glad to report, per the president's directive, the training is canceled immediately. So sanity prevailed this time around, but that doesn't mean that 
it's usually winning. Uh, that doesn't mean it's usually the case. Friends, we've got to continue to look at this and shine the light of, honestly, public outrage on this. I mean, it is stunning, stunning what we keep seeing with all this stuff. It really is, really astonishing. Oh, one more thing. I got to spend more time on this tomorrow before we get to roll call. But a judge in Pennsylvania has said that some lockdown measures are, are unconstitutional. You don't say. We don't, we think about this. We've had businesses shut down. We've had mask mandates put in place. We've had all these things. No legislation. This is just by executive fiat. I mean, we've had a stress test of how much America will accept tyranny and we've just all decided to go along with it. Oh, sure. Why not? What's the worst that could happen? We're seeing what the worst is that could happen. It's, it's the dissolution of our freedoms, our rights, our property, all because people are panicked and so scared all the time because of the media. Darn it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Roll Call, everybody! Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. That's how you get down with the Roll Call. Also, you can send us a direct message. Un message, I believe in French. If you would like, uh, you can do this you can do this on uh, Instagram, too. Just go to Buck Sexton, and uh, we'll get your stuff on the air, which is always fun for always fun for everyone. Producer Mark, do you ever watch the show Locked Up Abroad? Uh, I think so, actually. Is that like the locked up, but, you know, the locked up in America, but abroad, kind of? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's always, I was talking to my brothers about this over the weekend, because we were saying... What would be, we're having a conversation as we're, uh, we're taking a little trip together, the two brothers and me, and uh, we're, we're taking a little trip, and I was saying, what would be the worst country to be locked up abroad in, but not, not including, like, Iran, North, not including Axis of Evil countries, so Iran, North Korea, but wherever the worst place is. And then we just realized that every one of these shows is, like, the same. It's always a guy who's like, I was on holiday. It's always a British guy, by the way. He's like, I was on holiday. I was, like, in, I was, like, in Vietnam. And I'm like, oh, my mum, you know, I should have, a, I'll fly her down here. I'll make some extra cash by just taking this package. And I'll put it in, in my bag and I'll travel to the next place, you know, in Malaysia. I hear it's a great place, Malaysia. And then they went through my bag and all of a sudden it was a different story altogether. <laughs> like, and then they're like, dun, dun, dun. The guy's like caught with drugs and he's like, you know what I mean? It's always the same thing. So this is a public safety announcement for everybody. Definitely don't travel to any country, but particularly a uh, despotic Islamic country in, say, Southeast Asia or the Middle East, uh, carrying like a kilo of heroin to make some extra money while you're on vacation. That's a bad idea. Wait, that's not a good idea? I thought yeah, that was advised. Bad, bad oh. idea to do that. Yeah. It's amazing you have to <laughs> tell people that. It's always amazing. These guys are like, they're like, they're like hey, I was like, it was having a great time on the beach. I'm like, I'm like surfing. I'm loving it. But I'm running out of money and I'm on holiday and I need to make more cash. 
so I take this brick of heroin and I'm like, oh, but this guy who gave it to me, he's such a cool cat. Like, what could really go wrong? And then the police lock me in the scariest cell in the world full of rats and giant bugs. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's what happens. Don't do that. So I just thought it was an important safety tip for everybody. I'll take note right. of it. Facebook. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck. I saw it. Re- I was just thinking about that show recently. I've seen it so many times. Uh, all right. Katie kicks us off with a roll call here. Hey, Buck. Thanks for your interview with Ines Felcher about the rise of homeschooling. I taught in public school long enough to become very disillusioned with it. Now I'm happily homeschooling my own kid in Mississippi, one of the most supportive states for homeschooling. Because of this, there's a rich homeschooling community here that rivals any community provided through public schooling. We have sports teams, honor societies, clubs, and friendships provided through the many and diverse homeschool cooperatives and Facebook groups. Uh, to any parent that thinks they aren't qualified to teach their own kid, I would say if you have a high school education or even the cognitive ability to get one, you are qualified. And what's more, as much as those devoted teachers love their students, you know and love your kid more than they do and will give them what they need to succeed. Shields high to you and all the families trying to do best they can for their kids. Well, Katie, thank you so much for writing in about that. And I think that is a big part of it for, for a lot of people, the concern over whether they are uh, able, even if they want to homeschool, are they able to homeschool? I think that's uh, a big a big part of what, what holds people back from it. So that's really important to hear from someone who's both been a public school teacher and also knows the ins and outs of, of how to homeschool. Uh, so I, I hope that this happens a lot more. If nothing else, it would be great for there to be more marketplace competition that's not just based on the finances necessary for a private or even parochial school education, but the public schools need to know that they're not just going to get the same number of kids in the same district every year and the same money and not really have much in the way of standards to meet. Now, I know there are very good public schools. There are a lot. Of, I understand that. There are also a lot of really bad public schools. Frank writes, Love the show. Of course, Frank, you're a man who knows how to get on roll call. I saw the Tom Hanks movie on Apple TV. Very much enjoyed it. Actually, he is on a destroyer, I believe, not a submarine. It was very suspenseful and the time went by quickly. I also enjoyed seeing the details of how a ship captain or a ship is captain minute by minute during a conflict. I think it would be worth seeing. Well, I got to tell you, Frank, I'm still curious. Yeah, I, I just saw the trailer, and I guess I assumed it was a submarine for some reason, although that doesn't make much sense. In retrospect, it doesn't look like a submarine, does it? Uh, why did I think it was a submarine movie? Am I just Maybe I'm just getting confused with The Hunt for Red October in my brain, which can happen. Uh, but if you like it, you know, I'm definitely down to check it out. I'm not going to bother Producer Mark every day about whether he's seen Cobra Kai, but today I'm Producer Mark. Have you watched Cobra Kai yet? Have you watched The Mighty Ducks yet? All right. All right. Fair point. But Cobra Kai is 30 minutes long. So I'm just saying. A 30 minute I think long should, movie? I, no, it's a show. Oh. So it's like many episodes. So you can watch 30 minutes at a time. But you, you'll know if you like it based on the 30 minutes. And I even think and Mrs. Mark has seen The Karate Kid, right? The movie, the original? I think everyone's seen The Karate Kid. I, I think so. I think it's like up there with Back to the Future, E.T. These are movies you had to see. And like, Ralph Macchio's a big, uh, big Long Island guy, so. That's true. That's true. Yeah, if you go back and watch that, unfortunately, as I've had to explain to people before, I am not a hand-to-hand expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, 
But uh, I do know that the crane kick, don't, tr- don't try that one at home, folks. Don't, don't try that one on a bar fight. <laughs> That's like the, the worst finishing move I've ever seen in my life. You know, go on one leg, lift your, lift your knee up. You're, it's like you're begging for someone to shoot for your legs, tack you to the ground, and pound your face in. It's like the worst thing I've ever seen in a, uh, but anyway. It looked good matter. for a movie. It looked cool in the movie. When I was a kid, I was like, I want to learn the crane kick because I can beat up all the bad guys with my crane kick. Just like that. You definitely were like the kid. Like you've said before how you're the one who always talked to the cops in college. You were always the goody two-shoes. You were like best friends with the teacher, weren't you? Yeah. 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 I don't even have to guess. The teachers like me. There's no no question. I don't like being... When I got older, though, I think once I hit puberty and became like a, you know, uh, a little more manly, I don't like being told what to do, which was a big problem for working in the CIA and then the NYPD, so... Were you a hall monitor? No. Get the blank out of here. No way. You seem like that type. Oh, go blank yourself, producer Mark. That's that's uncalled (laughs) for. Absolutely false. False... I'm not narking on people. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Now, I got in a little bit of trouble in high school, actually. They instituted the Buck Sexton lateness rule, where if you were less than 30-minute commute from school, you'd start to get double detention. I'm serious. I'm not A lot of kids surprised. traveled from really far away. Yeah. Oh, this will shock you. I was late in high school all the time. And you know why? I figured out that we had free periods sometimes, and I figured out that your first detention or rather, your detention for missing one free period would be, I think it was 15 minutes or 30 minutes, but my free period in the morning could sometimes be an hour. So instead of checking in on time and then just sitting there for an hour and studying, I would just sleep and then go in and then take my 15 minutes of detention afterwards. They had to change the rule for me, too. So that's what I was like, if this, you really want to know. This is like now. You show up an hour late for the show and take <laughs> the yelling from me. Well, but I'm just saying, like, you know, you're saying I'm, a hall, I'm definitely not a hall monitor because I was late all the time. So I was not going to be good at <laughs> that's that. That's fair. But, uh, yeah. Um, so next up here. Let's see. Uh, we get Adam. First of all, great hair, even better show. Thank you, Adam. Not sure. I, I'm not sure I agree with that analysis a little bit, but thank you. I learn a lot from list. I'm just saying that is the hair better than the show. I think there's a case. I think there's a case to be made. You know, I'm just asking questions. I learn a lot from listening and I try to pass the buck whenever I can. My question is, how did the Democrat Party so successfully brand the Republican Party as evil? Anyone who knows basic American history knows the worst policies and most racist candidates were part of the Democrat Party. Of course, there are to have been bad Republicans, too. It just seems that it's accepted without question that Republicans are evil and Democrats are good. In your opinion, how did the left accomplish this? Adam, that's a fascinating question. I mean, it's one that many people and myself included have thought about a lot before. And I don't have a good pithy roll call answer for you. It wouldn't it seem like uh, in a reasonable, rational world, the Democrat Party, because of its defense of slavery, its Jim Crow it's, uh, you know, segregation, all the you know, Dixiecrats, all, all this all this bad racial stuff from our past. And it is terrible. It is unjust and it is wrong. It is something that we have had to confront. And we did confront also with a civil war, for example, where hundreds of thousands of Americans died in battlefield and got their limbs blown off. And so we confronted it at one point in a big way. But uh, and then continued to uh, struggle through it. And then the civil rights uh, era. And uh, anyway. 
I'm not going to do the whole history of it right now. But how do the Democrats pull this switch? I mean, I think you could argue the greatest trick the Democrats ever pulled was convincing the Democrat Party that it's not deeply racist in its history, because it is. And how do they do that? There's a cognitive dissonance there. Adam, I mean, yeah, they have control of the media and academia and, uh, you know, there is an absolutism that is is very commonplace among Democrats that I don't think you find among Republicans. But I don't I it's it's amazing how they've done it. I'd have to tell you that I think it is pretty amazing. All right. David, next up here, producer Mark. Let me help you understand why the fans booed at the game Thursday night. There are two very good reasons. One The long-established tradition to properly show respect for the flag in the country is to stand, if able, while the anthem is playing. There are no other accepted practices for this. Wait, oh, I just, David, we're going to have to come back to this tomorrow because we're running out of time. Everybody, we'll continue this roll call on the rest of the show tomorrow. Pass the buck. Go to bucksexton.com, too. Shields high.